this time, army recruitment is up, the cabinet reshuffle, the rise of Sinn Féin in the Republic, and Defender Europe 20, the largest deployment of US troops to Europe in 25 years. I'm Kate Chabot, and this is SITREP. The Army has given some rare good news on the shortfalls in its ranks. It's about to meet its recruitment target for the first time since it started a controversial private partnership with Capita in 2012. Controversial because instead of boosting intake, which had been struggling for a decade, shortfalls fell even further under the contract, worth hundreds of millions of pounds. James Hurst reports. The numbers haven't been adding up for a very long time. After the cuts of the 2010 Defence Review and the thousands of redundancies that followed, the regular army was supposed to settle at a train strength of around 82,000. But it kept shrinking, and right now it is more than 8,000 short of that figure. Since Capita took on the recruiting contract, numbers signing up have fallen short by an average of 30% each year. That compares with... 4% shortfalls in the two years before Capita took on the job. It's been a very tough road. It's been well documented that we have struggled. It is complicated and difficult and demanding because they're joining the army. No, they're not joining Tesco's. Kath Bosmai is chief executive of army recruiting for Capita. We made some fundamental changes to the process, which I talked about earlier in terms of making it quicker, easier, more engaging for candidates. And we also have worked really, really closely with the army on being flexible around how we allocate training spaces, how we deal with those candidates who are slightly less fit than they need to be. Um, So all of those adjustments and changes are the things that are are what has supported and paid off in terms of going from 60 to 100 in in one year. Why has it taken eight years? I think back to what the NAO report talked about a couple of years ago. When the contract was signed in 2012, you know, it's called the Recruiting Partnering Project. I think it would be fair to say you don't get partnership by signing a piece of paper. And both the Army and Capita would admit that they didn't embark upon partnering with a true partnership mentality. But one good year of recruitment is not going to solve the Army's shortage of soldiers. Major General Paul Nansen is General Officer Commanding Recruitment and Training. We can't be complacent, um, nor, nor would we be. I think what I've got to do now, what you've got to do now, is make sure we get this onto an enduring footing. You know, we need to make sure that we can sustain the improvements. One of the problems you face, though, is in 2017-18, 1,800 people who came into the army left before phase two training. You've got a retention problem at the very start. We're constantly looking at wastage, and it's many, the many reasons for it. And some, some people just don't like been in the army and therefore they discharge as of right. Some people get injured and we need to look at that and we are doing everything we can to make sure people stay in the training system. Meeting the recruitment target will blunt the repeated calls for the government to sack Capita but with just two years left on the contract and a defence review looming there may still be change ahead on army recruitment. James Hurst reporting there. Well Christopher Lee our defence analyst is in the studio. Um, A bit of good news then Christopher. It's very good news. Um, this 8,000 shortfall is very important, though. You've really got to push it through, not just a question of getting the paperwork right or the computer work right. Uh, it's got to be consistent. You've got to get it into the right orders as well. So if you're looking for techies, then you've got to make sure that the techies are going through at a faster rate than, let's say, infantry, who you can come by once every fortnight. And they've also changed some of the requirements in terms of medical uh, 
thresholds in terms of things like asthma. So you have to have been clear for less time of not using an inhaler to be able to be recruited than before. But this has all been taken with a sort of measured risk assessment. So it seems quite practical, really. I think it's totally impractical. I mean, if you're going to send soldiers off with a, with an inhaler in their back pocket, uh, that, that, that's, a, that's a bit tricky. I think that what you don't do you don't bring the standards down. You had standards there not because you inherited them from the First World War or something. You had standards there because you desperately need them. Now, the point, therefore, is that you actually have to get in, get alongside, not capita so much, but the people that take over in two years' time, mm. and say, have we got the right way of progressing people and the right sort of people? And also, do we know what sort of army we're shaping up to have, say, in five years' time? Because that's the sort of time somebody will stay in the army for. And this only applies to the army. Uh, the Navy's still got shortfall. Uh, the RAF is still needs a lot of ground crews as well. And so let, let's wait and see how the other two services respond. Still a bit of a problem, though, in that although they seem to be doing well in terms of getting more people to sign up, phase two trainings, people still dropping out at quite a high rate. Is that come back to what you're saying, the kind of people that are being recruited? Well, it's not necessarily the kind of people. It's, it's, the, cra- it's the training and, and their ambitions. I mean, somebody, is, somebody signs up because they like the television advertisements. That's the first thing, let us say. That, that happens. The second thing is they quite like the progress and the people they meet. And the one thing is happening is that they've opened up the old recruiting stations in high streets. They've started to do so. And instead of the passed over soldiers who are not going to go anywhere and put them in there or, or, or just put machines in, uh, they're starting to get some of the enthusiasts, the guys that can actually say, yeah, I've done two years in Afghanistan. And I was you know, doing this and I was doing that. And the army is now in 25 countries in the world, and I've been to 14 of them. That sort of thing. Uh, young people, 22, 23-year-olds, lance corporals coming up. That's the sort of person that somebody walks in the door and say, that's going to be me in two, three years' time. And you've got to make it exciting. But once you've got them, you've got to keep it exciting. And you've got to devise training programs uh, that don't have people just driving uh, sort of big lorries up and down the M11. Now stay with us, Chris, because Prime Minister Boris Johnson has been shuffling his cabinet and junior ministers today. The Chancellor has been forced to resign, the most senior minister after the Prime Minister, and a little-known MP has been given the Treasury in his place. The Armed Forces Minister has been promoted to the cabinet. Anne-Marie Trevelyan is now Secretary of State for International Development. Well, I'm joined by Lucy Fisher, Defence Editor of The Times. Hello, Lucy. Uh, Obviously... By the time people listen to this programme, there may have been further announcements. But so far, any surprises? Well, the big surprise of the day is, as you mentioned, the departure of Sajid Javid. I don't think anyone foresaw that coming into this reshuffle. It was briefed ahead of time as being quite a moderate um, shuffling of the ranks. Um, But it seems that Boris Johnson gambled um, on trying to um, stake out a power grab from number 11 by uh, declaring that um, Sajid Javid would have to sack his current special advisers. And uh, that's something he refused to do. Mm. These ministers are going to be in place for the next five years, especially in the MOD, where its spending programme is not easily changed. So the new MOD team, what are their main tasks for the rest of this parliament? Well, the tone will very much be set by the sweeping review we expect the Prime Minister to announce within coming weeks. This is not just the usual quinquennial uh, strategic defence and security review. This is going to be a bigger and deeper integrated foreign policy um, defence and security review that will look about um, how Boris Johnson 
builds this much talked about um, vision for global Britain. So far, we've had little of the details filled in, but the Defence Secretary will obviously be fighting to ensure um, that the budget either remains neutral or goes up, uh, and how um, the services can boost um, Britain's presence around the world. Chris Billy, our Defence Analyst, is here in the studio. Lucy, I'll tell you what I'm not quite sure about the, the, the new Defence Review. Who actually does it? Who then eyeballs the defence ministry with it? Is it is it something which is a, a hangover from the May government uh, when you had somebody in the prime minister's office uh, leading on this? Well, it's absolutely um, Downing Street led, um, as you might expect. It's Dr. John Bew, um, a foreign policy uh, academic um, who's currently in the number 10 um, policy unit uh, advising the Prime Minister on foreign affairs. Um, He's also a biographer of Clement Attlee, who will be um, leading the review. Um, I understand it's going to be in two phases. The first will be a blue sky sort of thinking exercise. And I think the sense there is that the Prime Minister wants to um, get some of the thinking underway before it goes out to departments, because, of course, this will not be only the Ministry of Defence involved in the review, but, of course, the Foreign Office, the Home Office and the Department for International Development before those departments. And what's been described to me is their vested interests. Um, get involved. Um, Downing Street wants to kind of do some of that thinking and, and make sure it is um, driving forward the direction of the review. And Lucy, the, the most intriguing appointment uh, is the man with the money, Rishi Sunak, the man the MOD has to fight with for more money for defence. How do you think that fight will go? Well, it will be an interesting one. Um, as you say, um, Rishi Sunak uh, is not a terribly um, well-known uh, name in the UK, certainly not a household name up until now. Curiously, he's probably better known in India because um, his father-in-law is the uh, Infosys um, tycoon, a billionaire in India. So um, he's well known there for for his high profile um, family. Um, I I think we have to view the fact that Rishi Sunak comes from an investment banker background. Um, I think we can probably expect him to be fairly fiscally conservative. Um, He won't be an easy shot um, to, to cry out for more money. Mm. And just to mention Oliver Dowd and Culture Secretary, he's moved from the Office for Veterans Affairs. What kind of a move is that and what effect will that have on the on the Office for Veterans Affairs? Well, Oliver Dowden, um, like Rishi Sunak uh, and Robert Jenrick, um, were known as these three musketeers, three sort of rising Tory stars that made a joint endorsement of Boris Johnson um, in the Conservative leadership last year. So it's no surprise um, that Oliver Dowden, um, like Rishi Sunak, gets a seat at the Cabinet table today. Um, I think we're very much going to see um, the, the Office of Veterans Affairs taken seriously. It's something the Prime Minister has acted quickly to try and uh, live up to some of his pledges on. We've seen the rollout of the Veterans Rail Card, um, the promise of um, job interviews in, in the public sector for veterans. I think one of the problematic um, issues coming down the line for the Prime Minister is some of the um, the legacy issues in Northern Ireland. Um, it, it seems to me today that the sacking of Julian Smith, the Northern Ireland Secretary, could spell trouble um, about the um, power-sharing agreement and the um, investigations into um, British veterans that that deal um, seemed to entail. All right, we'll leave it there for the moment. Lucy Fisher, Defence Editor of The Times, thank you for your time today. Now, staying with politics, the political landscape in the Republic of Ireland has been transformed by a surge in support for Sinn Féin in its general election. It raises the huge question, how is it Sinn Féin didn't realise they were going to get so many votes? Well, Tommy Gorman is Northern Editor at RTE. Uh, Tommy, um, why did so many people vote for Sinn Féin? I think... There was a sense in Ireland, and uh, 
it's repeating a phenomenon we've seen in so many places in the Western world. There was a sense that although the economy seemed to be booming, a lot of people were being left behind. In Dublin, for instance, we have some of the highest property prices in Europe. And you had people maybe looking to take a one-bedroom apartment that was maybe costing uh, £2,500 per month in rent, £30,000 a year. Uh, and that people just didn't have the salaries to support uh, that kind of expense. I think in many respects, what the government got was a, a critical reaction uh, and they got, I suppose, a radical response from most of the electorate. And what was Sinn Féin's actual strategy? Because you get the impression they could have won if they put up more candidates. Well, as to why they didn't put up more candidates, Sinn Féin had gone through three successive setbacks in terms of elections, in local elections, in European elections, on the island of Ireland, and then in Westminster elections in Northern Ireland. And in some respects, Sinn Féin got the kicking before the other political parties south of the border got their share of abuse from the electorate. So Sinn Féin decided it had to learn. And actually, what they did in the southern election campaign was they made a series of responses and they almost ticked the boxes for different groups, for pensioners, for students, for hard-pressed uh, um, middle-income people who just couldn't afford mortgages. So they made a series of very radical promises and commitments uh, to different sectors of the electorate, and they got traction. I think they also discovered, probably for the first time in an election south of the border, that the Northern Ireland Troubles and Sinn Féin's links with the IRA and the paramilitary path to the party, that really wasn't a huge factor. It was more about the issues of today and tomorrow. And the Irish government, uh, in contrast, they discovered that their track record of achievement on issues like Brexit, people just banked that and said, that's done now as far as we're concerned, and we're more concerned about issues like housing and health and homelessness. And will they be able to form a coalition government? What, what exactly happens next and how long might it all take? I think they're struggling because you had Sinn Féin and the two main parties, Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael, main parties of the past. You have them with a certain number of seats, uh, just under 40 each in a 160-member parliament. And so far, nobody has got, well, as a result of those, uh, uh, result, as a result of the election, nobody has the numbers to form a government outright. So you have a, a series of coalition possibilities being explored, but there's no obvious answer to it. Mm. I think it's, it's also very, very significant. I heard your last story. I think the firing of Julian Smith, the Secretary of State for Northern Ireland, uh, where you had political stability established, I think his firing because of considerations across the water, this is a Tory internal housekeeping that's going on there and he's the victim of that. I think that is going to bring more uncertainty back onto the island of Ireland, into north-south relations, into east-west relations. And I think, I suspect that it is going to bring Brexit to the fore again because if the Tories under Boris Johnson uh, pursue a hard Brexit uh, and a very, very limited trade deal, well, then there's a very real possibility that Brexit is going to become a very contentious matter on the island of Ireland again. Christine the, the, uh, the story then shifts into uh, Northern Ireland and to the thoughts of the Protestant community and also the Protestant political community. And it's worth remembering that uh, in, I, th I think in, in the United Kingdom, 
there isn't a time when people are not wondering about the unification of North and South Ireland into one island. I think that's a really relevant point. I'd say if you're a unionist at the moment uh, and you're looking at all these young people with tricolours south of the border and then you see somebody like Julian Smith who had brought stability into the equation and then you're looking at, say, the priorities of the Conservative Party at the moment where they're looking to make, make necessary transfers of resources to the north of England. Well, then, in the middle of the night, as a unionist, are you waking up and are you saying, where do we have friends? Where do we have support? And what is the long-term future of unionism within Ireland? Just explain to us, Tommy, the whole issue about the border poll and how likely that is to happen. Well, interestingly... In the South, it wasn't a huge issue. And Sinn Féin, in the course of the elections, they were quite coy about the necessity for a border poll in the lifetime of the next administration south of the border. They weren't pushing that message. That had been a strong one in Northern Ireland elections, but they went very quiet on it. But now that they have a mandate, a stronger mandate, and now that you have, say, this instability that has been introduced... Uh, by the Conservative government reshuffle today, I think the border poll is going to return as an issue. And I think the people who will be most unnerved today, and as a result of, say, the last election south of the border, like your colleague has been suggesting, your other interviewee there just a few minutes ago, I think the people who will be wondering, where do we sit in this uh, move, set of moving parts? Uh, I think unionists will just wonder uh, what, what's happening here. But a border poll can only be initiated by the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom. Um, you're quite right that under the Good Friday Agreement that it is the right of the Secretary of State of Northern Ireland to say that a border poll is necessary. But the criteria that will influence that judgment will be opinion polls uh, and electoral considerations. If, for instance, you see a rise in nationalism, if you see opinion polls on both sides of the border saying there's a case for a united Ireland, well, no British government would be immune to those questions. And, of course, the conspiracy theorists, uh, theorists will start asking, uh, is there a section within the Brexiteer movement who would say that as far as they're concerned, uh, maybe the priority is England and Wales. What happens if Scotland leaves? What's the position in Northern Ireland in that situation? I don't think the old certainty of the past uh, can be relied upon with, uh, with, I suppose, the same 100% conviction uh, as we've had in past generations. On that I, think, note. I, I think you're seeing changing dynamics on the island of Ireland. All right, Tommy Gorman, Northern Editor, RT. Thank you for your time today. Sit rep with Kate Still to come, Defender Europe 20, the largest deployment of US-based forces to Europe on exercise in more than 25 years. Burkina Faso in Africa's Sahel region is currently at the centre of a huge conflict with different armed groups, including Al-Qaeda and Islamic State. According to a report by Refugees International, it's now undergoing the fastest-growing displacement crisis in the world. The humanitarian organisation says in the last year, more than half a million people have been forced to flee their homes. Alexandra Lamarche is from Refugees International. 
But we, what we need to do is every single thing that happens on the security side needs to be matched on the political side. We need to be pushing the government of Burkina, the government of Mali, and the government of Niger to do a better job to respond to the needs of its own population and quell, and quell the roots of the conflict. A lot of these conflicts are stemming from sort of longstanding feelings of marginalization, um, lack of investment in more rural areas. So these are the, the sort of root causes that are being um, exacerbated by armed groups and, and are gaining, allowing them to gain traction. Um, and, and lastly, but most importantly, to me at least, is, is the humanitarian side. While we talk a lot about the security aspect in the Sahel, there's very, very little attention um, in terms of the humanitarian needs. Anything that we do needs to be matched with humanitarian actions. Well, let's talk to Paul Melly from Chatham House's Africa programme. Hello, Paul. Um, Is Burkina Faso then going the same way as neighbouring Mali, where in 2013 French and African troops had to intervene to oust extremists? Well, it's a slightly different situation because the Mali conflict was triggered um, by an an upsurge in uh, northern separatism by the Tuareg people who live in the far north of Mali, combined with an inflow of weapons and fighters coming back from Libya after the collapse of the Gaddafi regime. Now, those factors don't really apply in Burkina, but the country is now, Burkina Faso is now suffering the overspill impact, if you like, of the Malian crisis, because despite the French and African intervention and the subsequent deployment of a UN peacekeeping force, uh, there's still Uh, seven years later, no peace in the north of Mali. Uh, Jihadist terrorism is very active. There are constant attacks. At the same time, uh, there are still tensions between the groups that were involved in the separatist issue, even though some of those signed a peace deal. And all this has had a very destabilizing effect, both on Burkina Faso and on the western part of Niger, which is also neighboring northern Mali. And so in this region now known as the region of the three frontiers, where the three countries come together, we've seen a really marked upsurge in very violent uh, jihadist attacks. Um, And in Burkina Faso, uh, whereas this used to be a sort of border security issue, now about half of the country is a destabilized uh, with armed groups staging attacks. Um, More than 1,000 schools closed, for example. And as your um, interviewee from Refugees International pointed out, large numbers of displaced people. But it's a a slightly different cause from Mali, but the end effect, if you like, is the same. A destabilized rural society, a lot of violence. So you talk about the differences there between the situation in Burkina Faso and Mali, but the effect is that the displacement of these jihadists moving from country to country. Uh, can you just explain what is going in the Sahel, going on in the Sahel region in general? Because this is a whole area of countries uh, just south of, of the Sahara Desert, isn't it? And how they're affected. What, what is the danger exactly? Well, there's a long-term problem because, as you say, this is the region that lies just south of the Sahara, It has a very fragile climate uh, with only two or three months of rain each year. And there's huge pressure on the environment from climate change, from rising population and from competition also uh, between settled farming communities and uh, people who are herding animals, nomadic herding populations um, for the very few resources that there are. 
So the situation was already very fragile. And then into that mix, you've had the arrival of jihadist terrorism over the last 10 years, originally spilling down actually from the um, civil conflict in Algeria. Uh, and the the consequence of all that is that then all the grassroots development programs that have helped these countries to hold together and basically feed their populations and get, for example, uh, more girls into school or provide better uh, security of food supplies for isolated villages, all of that day-to-day -day grassroots development work and public services have been disrupted or... or um, broken down, if you like, mm. by the upsurge in violence. And these are large, geographically very, not so much Burkina, but Niger and Mali, they're geographically huge countries. So the strain on the state just to provide basic public services to isolated communities uh, is also very another factor in the mix. All right. Paul Melly, we'll have to that's leave... That's where this has come in. Paul Melly, we'll have to leave it there for the moment. Thank you very much for your time today. That's Paul Melly from Chatham House. The United States is 100% committed to NATO, so says a US general involved in the planning of the largest deployment of US-based forces to Europe for an exercise in more than 25 years. Defender Europe 20 is an American-led multinational exercise in which more than 20,000 US troops will join servicemen and women from NATO nations and 18 NATO partners to transit across Germany, Poland and up to the Baltic states. Well, Rosie Layden has been speaking to American Brigadier General Matthew Van Wagenen, the Deputy Chief of Staff Operations at NATO's Allied Rapid Reaction Corps. Well, from a U.S. perspective, it's been in the planning for five years. Uh, it was originally conceived by uh, our current uh, Chairman of Joint Chief of Staff, Mark Milley, uh, when he was commander of the U.S. Army. Uh, and it took that, that long to get this exercise going. Uh, it is the most important exercise for the U.S. Army in training uh, this year, uh, certainly. Uh, and, and to just, for the record, it will come back in 2022. So Defender will come back in even years to Europe at this scale for some, some time to come. And why is it so important? Well, it, it, for the U.S. Army, uh, after fighting years and years of counterinsurgency in both Afghanistan and Iraq and other places, uh, we've had to learn at war fighting at scale again, and that's deploying large formations, divisions, brigades, corps, uh, massive amounts of equipment, uh, and doing it rapidly. So uh, the U.S. is out of practice at this, and this year is an essential year that uh, uh, shows our reassures uh, our allies, uh, NATO partners here in in, uh, in Europe, that we rapidly can get the the combat power we need in large scale back to Central Europe. And. We hear a lot of equivocal remarks, to be diplomatic, from the US president about NATO. And there's a constant rumbling about, which perhaps appears to reflect a lack of confidence or enthusiasm for NATO. How does that sit with, with you know, the military commitment to NATO, which you're obviously doing at, at scale? How do we square those two things? Well, I can always speak for the military. Uh, the United States Army uh, and the Joint Force of the United States is, is 100% committed to NATO. It's it's a priority. It's a priority for uh, my Commander-in-Chief, the President. It's a priority for SAC here. It's a priority for Lieutenant General Covoli, the Commander of the United States Army Europe. I think actions speak. There'll be over 22,000 soldiers will return to Europe uh, with 17,000 pieces of equipment and be here for a duration of up to six months. If, if that doesn't reassure uh, our commitment to NATO, I don't know what does. Uh, the, the largest 
uh, training exercise since 1988. And I, uh, uh, it's, it, this is uh, going to be an incredible opportunity for the Allied Rapid Reaction Corps and for the 18 other NATO partners and, and allies that are involved in this exercise. And in terms of the, the route of this exercise, um, these huge numbers that we're talking about are going to transit through Germany, Poland, obviously we've been hearing about, and um, on up to the Baltics. Uh, does that send a deterrent message to Russia? I think it sends a deterrent uh, message to any adversary NATO would come under, that we could uh, cooperate, rapidly uh, receive equipment in the central group from multiple ports and airfields, in transit across many different nations. I mean, there's a message that are to any adversary out there that uh, NATO uh, and its partners uh, understand how to do this and can do it at scale. That's the biggest thing, large, and can do it very quickly. I mean, that is a, uh, that's a message to in any adversary around the world. Brigadier General Matthew Van Wagenen there. Uh, Christopher. I'll tell you that. Is it frightening the Russians, the exercise? No way is it frightening the Russians. <laughs> Putin isn't going to his bed early at night saying, what am I going to do about this? I don't think he's ever going to bed early at night. Well, he does Putin? for other reasons, but, I mean, the, <laughs> but he certainly is not going to take any notice of this exercise whatsoever. What he should be taking notice of, everybody should be taking notice of, is a meeting of defence ministers in NATO in Brussels um, yesterday and today, and they have confirmed that NATO training exercises will take place. What are you waving for? The NATO exercises will be take place in in uh, in Iraq, and the training program is going to continue in Iraq, which includes the 400 British okay. soldiers. Okay, and there we must there. end it. That's why I was waving. It's time to say goodbye. Till next week. Bye bye. <laughs>